Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Lionel Crabb. So Lieutenant Commander Lionel Kenneth Philip Crabb, born 28th of January 1909 and presumed dead 19th of April 1956, known as Buster Crabb, was a Royal Navy frogman and diver who vanished during a reconnaissance mission for MI6 around a Soviet cruiser berthed at Portsmouth Dockyard in 1956. Now we're going to get into a bit of his early life. So Lionel Crabb was born in 1909 to Hugh Alexander Crabb and Beatrice Goodall of Streatham, South West London. They were a poor family. Hugh Crabb was a commercial traveller for a firm of photographic merchants. Crabb's father Hugh was eventually listed as missing during the Great War. Now, for most of Crabbe's early days, he was brought up by Frank Jarvis, a relative of Beatrice, who came to stay after the war. For a short and unhappy time, Lionel went to school at Brighton College, but then transferred to HMS Conway, a naval academy. When he left school, he was a bit of a drifter, having lots of different jobs and not much liking any of them. In the end, Crabbe tried to join the Navy in 1939 when he was 28. He was refused on medical grounds, was told to join the reserves, so he joined the Merchant Navy instead. Now we get into the outbreak of World War II. So at the outbreak of the Second World War, Crabbe was first an army gunner, and because of this he was able to join the Royal Navy Patrol Service that used trawlers to clear mines. At last he was where he wanted to be. Unfortunately, he had to have a medical at some stage, and when he did, it was found that he had a weak left eye, and so he was banned from further sea service. Fed up with this, Crabbe volunteered for special duties and ended up becoming a mine and bomb disposal expert. Then in 1941, he joined the Royal Navy. The next year, he was sent to Gibraltar, where he worked in a mine and bomb disposal unit to remove the Italian limpet mines that enemy divers had attached to the hulls of Allied ships. Initially, Crabbe's job was to disarm mines that the British divers removed. After doing this for a while, he thought he could be more of a use if he became a diver and applied to join the team. Crabbe hated the idea of any sort of fitness training, smoked and drank heavily, and could only swim just three lengths of a swimming pool. But the head of the diving team, Lieutenant Bailey, accepted him because he was good at mine disposal. He was one of a group of underwater clearance divers who checked for limpet mines in Gibraltar Harbour during the period of Italian frogmen and manned torpedo attacks by the Decima Flagita MAS. Gibraltar was a stronghold for the British as it provided them with a strategic port in the Mediterranean. It was a heavily fortified location due to the extensive below-rock tunnel system. Due to the area's importance, the Italians launched clandestine actions against them using frogmen. Despite the harbour having a net barrier that extended beneath the water, the Italians, who would send men to an area on an underwater rideable torpedo, they would then cut through the netting and into the harbour. They would also attach limpet mines to the hulls of Allied vessels, the same explosives Lionel Crabbe disposed of. At one point, they managed to take out five ships in three months. They also dived with oxygen rebreathers, Davis submerged escape apparatus, which until then had not been used much, if at all, for swimming down from the surface. At first they swam by breaststroke without swim fins. 
In those days, diving equipment was very rudimentary, as up to the outbreak of the Second World War, the Navy did not consider the diver to have an offensive role, and used them mostly for clearance diving or repairing ship's bottoms. However, attacks by the Italian used midget submarines during the First World War soon put pay to this idea. By the time the Second World War started, the Italians had become much more sophisticated, and by 1941 had damaged two battleships, HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Valiant in the port of Alexandria. By the time Italy surrendered, their mid- submarines had sunk 190,000 tons of merchant shipping and over 90,000 tons of Allied warships. Bailey and Crab built up the underwater working party, and when Bailey broke his ankle, Crab took it over. Crab had to constantly adapt to the Italian threat, especially when the Italians started to use human torpedoes. The unit secretly took up residence in an old battered steamer called the Altera, moored in a neutral Spanish port just five miles from Gibraltar. On board the Altera, the Italians made a workshop to equip their subs and cut an entrance hole below the waterline so that the human torpedoes could be launched in complete secrecy. On the 7th of December, three of these were launched to attack shipping in Gibraltar Harbour, and it was only because of Crab's vigilance, along with his assistant leading Seaman Bell, that all the attacks were foiled. On the 8th of December 1942, during one such attack, two of the Italian frogmen, Lieutenant Vistantini and Petty Officer Margo, died, probably killed by small explosive charges thrown from harbour defence patrol boats, a tactic said to have been introduced by Crab. Their bodies were recovered and their swim fins and scuba sets were taken from then on used by Sidney Knowles and Crab. Crab earned himself an impressive reputation in Gibraltar, so much so that he was promoted to lieutenant commander and put in charge of all mine removal along the Italian coast. His team's primary task was clearing the harbour in Venice of unexploded German ordnance. Ironically, the Italians surrendered the next year, and Crab was able to not only visit the Altera to recover various bits of submarines, but he also visited the Italians who had used them. They apparently had a great respect for Crab and were happy to assist him in his quest to develop these weapons. By the end of the war, Crab was recognised as a skilled diver and explosives removal expert. Crab was awarded the George Medal for his efforts and was promoted to Lieutenant Commander. In 1943, he became Principal Diving Officer for Northern Italy and was assigned to clear mines in the ports of Livorno and Venice. He was later created an Officer of the Order of the British Empire for these services. He was also an investigating diver in the suspicious death of General Skiorski of the Polish Army, whose B-24 Liberator aircraft crashed near Gibraltar in 1943. I do have another episode of this podcast that is dedicated to that, so I won't speak too much on it now. That'll be for a, a later episode. By this time, he had gained the nickname Buster after the American actor and swimmer Buster Crab. Ironically, the Royal Navy diver wasn't a fantastic swimmer, but rather exceptionally diligent and determined. After the war, Crab was stationed in Palestine and led an underwater explosives disposal team that removed mines placed by Jewish divers from the Palyam, the maritime force of the Palamak elite Jewish fighting force during the years of mandatory Palestine. After 1947, he was demobilized from the military. Crab then moved to a civilian job and used his diving skills to explore the wreck of a Spanish galleon from the 1588 Armada off Tobermory on the Isle, Isle of Mull. He then located a suitable site for a discharging pipe for the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment at Oldermaston. He later returned to work for the Royal Navy. He twice dived to investigate sunken Royal Navy submarines, the HMS Truculent in January of 1950 and HMS Affray in 1951 to find out whether there were any survivors. Both efforts, however, proved fruitless. In 1952, Crabbe married Margaret Ellen Player, the daughter of Henry Charles Blackenbury Williamson and the former wife of Ernest Albert Player. The couple separated in 1953 and divorced about two years later. 
1955, Crabbe took frogman Sidney Knowles with him to investigate the hull of a Soviet Svoldov-class cruiser to evaluate its superior maneuverability. According to Knowles, they found a circular opening at the ship's bow and inside it a large propeller that could be directed to give thrust to the bow. That same year in March, Crabbe was made to retire due to his age, but a year later he was recruited by MI6. By that time, Crabbe's heavy drinking and smoking had taken its toll on his health, and he was not the diver that he had been in World War II. Now we get into Crabbe's disappearance, or the Crabbe affair as it's known. So in October of 1955, Crabbe was apparently instructed by the Royal Navy to find out why the Russian cruiser Svildov was so maneuverable. The ship was in Portsmouth as part of a spithead review, and since the Americans were also very keen to find out, the mission was overseen by them. Crabbe swam to the bottom of the ship where he found a large hole from which a propeller could be lowered to provide more thrust for the bow, which explained the cruiser's superb maneuverability. It was a success of this mission that seemed to spur on the idea of inspecting the bottom of the cruiser, and I am going to butcher this name, I do apologise, Ords Hon Xzi, which was due in Portsmouth in April 1956, carrying the Russian President Khrushchev and his Foreign Minister Bolgnin on a goodwill visit. MI6 then recruited Crab in 1956 to investigate this particular Soviet cruiser that had taken these two heads of Russian heads of state on a diplomatic mission to Britain. According to Peter Wright in his book Spycatcher in 1987, Crab was sent to investigate this ship's propeller, a new design that naval intelligence wanted to examine. On the 19th of April 1956, Crab dived into Portsmouth Harbour and his MI6 controller never saw him again. Years later, a Russian who had been on board this ship claimed that the Soviets were expecting him that night after being tipped off about the British operation by a mole, and that he dived into the dark and dirty waters beneath the ship, hunted down Crab, and slit his air hose and his throat with a knife. Crab's companion in the Sallyport Hotel took all his belongings and even the page of the hotel register on which they had written their names. Ten days later, British newspapers published stories about Crab's disappearance in an underwater mission. Now, interestingly enough, MI6 tried to cover up this espionage mission. On the 29th of April, under instructions from Rear Admiral John Inglis, the Director of Naval Intelligence, the Admiralty announced that Crabbe had vanished when he had taken part in trials of secret underwater apparatus in Stokes Bay on the Solent. The Soviets answered by releasing a statement stating that the crew of the ship that he had been sent to investigate had seen a frogman near the cruiser on the 19th of April. It was reported by Radio Moscow that the Kremlin had sent an official note to the United Kingdom concerning what Pravda described as shameful espionage. End quote. The Foreign Office reportedly replied, and I quote, Commander Crabbe carried out frogman tests and, as is assumed, lost his life during these tests. His presence in the vicinity of the destroyers occurred without any permission whatsoever, and Her Majesty's government expressed their regret at the incident. End quote. British newspapers speculated that the Soviets had captured Crab and taken him to the Soviet Union. The British Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, disapproved of the fact that MI6 had operated without his consent in the UK, the preserve of the security service MI5. It is mistakenly claimed that Eden forced Director General John Sinclair to resign following the incident. He had determined to replace Sinclair with MI5 Director General Dick White before the incident. The Prime Minister told the House of Commons it was not in the public interest to disclose the circumstances in which Crab was presumed to have met his end. Now we come to the supposed body of Crab that was found. So, a little less than 14 months after Crab's disappearance, on the 9th of June 1957, a body in a diving suit was brought to the surface in their net by two fishermen off Pisley Island in Chichester Harbour. 
The body was brought to shore in a landing craft operated by members of RAF Marine Craft Unit number 1107. It was missing its head and both its hands, which made it impossible to identify using then available technology in the 1950s. According to British diving expert Rob Hole, the body had the same height as crab, the same body hair, colour, and was dressed in the same clothes. Pirelli two-piece diving suit and admiralty patterned swim fins that crab was wearing when he embarked on his final mission. Hall wrote that given the length of time that crab's body had been in the water, there was nothing sinister about the missing head and hands. Crab's ex-wife was not sure enough to identify the body, nor was Crab's girlfriend, Pat Rose. Sidney Knowles was requested to identify the body shortly after its discovery. He described the body as being clad in a faded green rubber frogman suit, a type that was issued to the Royal Navy divers, and the remains of a white sweater. The suit had been cut open from the neck to the groin and along both legs, revealing very dark pubic hair. Knowles examined the body closely, looking for a Y-shaped scar behind the left knee and a prominent scar on the left thigh. However, he failed to find any scars on the body and stated that it was not crab. A pathologist, Dr. D.P. King, ex examined the body and stated in a short report for the inquest that a careful examination of the body failed to reveal any scars or marks of identification. Then we come to the inquest. So an inquest was opened on the 11th of June 1957 by Bridgman, who had received the pathologist's report that there was no way of establishing identity, as neither Knowles nor Crabbe's wife nor a Lieutenant Mc. Lanahan, a Royal Navy torpedo officer from HMS Vernon, had been able to identify the body. Bridgman adjourned the inquest until the 26th of June to allow time for identification. The inquest was resumed on the 26th of June. The pathologist King gave evidence that he had returned to the mortuary and re-examined the body on the 14th of June. He reported that he found a scar in the shape of an inverted Y on the left side of the left knee and a scar on the left thigh about the size of a sixpenny coin. King stated that the scar had been photographed whilst he was present. I'm not exactly convinced that that's exactly what happened. I mean, it's interesting how you can have people that know Lionel Crabbe so well examine a body and look for scars, they can't find any. Then you've got a pathologist that says, oh, well, I went back in there, couldn't find the scars the first time, but I did this time. I, I don't understand. It's really weird how all of a sudden you've got a body that has no scars, and now you've got a body that suddenly has scars. I don't think the pathologist was actually telling the truth. I think that he said that just so the inquest could be closed down. I don't believe that he found any scars at all. I don't believe the body was Lionel Krabs. You have a wife. You have a girlfriend. Neither can identify that the body is Krabs. There's no head. There's no hands. There was no scars found by Sidney Knowles, who was well known to have been a friend of Lionel Krabs or Buster Krabs. And now you're trying to tell me that suddenly this pathologist all of a sudden manages to find these scars later on down the track um, I'm not buying it you know if he is if maybe one or two days later maybe maybe you had a quick examination but you suddenly you have all this time that passes and then it's like oh we're gonna have an inquest now we need you to look at the body okay we'll take a re-examination of the body there were no scars the first time around but oh suddenly there's scars the second time around to me that's a little bit suspicious now we come to the supposed fate or what happened to Lionel Crabb. So, as information was declassified under the 50-year rule, new facts on Crabb's disappearance came to light. On the 27th of October 2006, the National Archives released papers relating to the fatal Ordzhoninsky mission. I am so sorry, I cannot pronounce that name. Sidney Knowles, a former diving partner of Crabb, stated in a televised interview on Inside Out South on the 19th of January 2007 that Crabb did not dive alone on his fatal last mission. Quote, he told me they'd given him a buddy diver. 
End quote. Furthermore, papers released under the Freedom of Information Act indicate that there were other divers investigating this ship while it was in Portsmouth Harbour. On the 9th of November 2007, the Independent reported how the government had covered up the death of Buster Crabs. The cruiser in question was later transferred by the Soviet government to Indonesia in 1962, where it operated as KRI Arain. The ship operated in the conflict against the Netherlands over West Popper and was later used as a floating detention centre for suspected communists during the Indonesian killings of 1965 to 66. The cruiser was then scrapped in 1971. In a 1968 retrospective of the affair, Time reported that a skull thought by some to be crabs was found in early March 1967 on a beach near Portsmouth. Now we get into the theories and speculations. So, the first of them was that he died during Soviet interrogations. So, after he was released from prison, the spy Harry Horton wrote a book called Operation Portland, in which he claimed that in July of 1956, his Russian handler, a man he knew as Roman, had told him how Crab had died. Horton said that shortly before the Soviet visit, he had been meeting Roman in a pub in Punchnoll, Dorset, and happened to see a friend who worked at the underwater detection establishment with her boyfriend, who was a diver. The boyfriend was annoyed that he had been training for something special which had just been called off. Shortly after hearing that, Roman cut short the meeting. According to Horton's account, after assessing the divers that might be planning some activity relating to the ship in question, the Soviet Navy arranged for six underwater sentries to watch the bottom of the ship, which had been fitted with wire jack strays on either side to help hold them on. When Crab arrived, a struggle ensued in which Crab's air supply was turned off and he passed out. He was then hauled on board and taken to the sick bay, having passed out a second time where he was given medical treatment. When Crab had recovered sufficiently, the Soviets began to interrogate him. He was making a confession when he collapsed and did not recover. Aware that they might be accused of causing his death, the Soviets decided to fix his body lightly to the bottom of the ship so that it came loose once the ship was underway. However, the body tangled in something other underwater, which meant it was not discovered for 14 months. Horton advanced the theory that Crab's mission was to plant a small limpet mine onto the ship, the purpose of which was to detect whether the Soviet Navy was using the latest sonar technology. If if it was, the mine would detonate and the ship would slow down. If not, the mine would eventually detach and fall to the bottom of the sea. Another theory floating around at the time was that he was killed by the Soviets. So, in a 1990 interview, Joseph Zverkin, a former member of Soviet naval intelligence, had moved to Israel after the breakup of the Soviet Union. He claimed that the Soviets had noticed Crab in the water and that a Soviet sniper had shot him. On the 16th of November 2007, the BBC and the Daily Wire reported that Edard Kolstov, a Soviet frogman, claimed to have caught Crab placing a mine on the hull of the ship and cut his throat. In an interview for a Russian documentary film, Koltsov showed the dagger he claimed to have used as well as the Order of the Red Star Medal that he said he had been awarded for the deed. A Russian journalist from the military newspaper Kranzania Zvezda considered the Koltsov story improbable. In particular, the archive documents did not confirm that Koltsov, a bus driver in Rostov-on-Don for 30 years, had been awarded the Order, Order of the Red Star or was a Navy frogman. Basically, the Order of the Red Star is the highest Russian award. Think of it as like it's the Russian equivalent of America's Medal of Honor. If I remember my history correctly, when the Russians were trying to cross over the river to get into Germany, I know that Stalin made a quote once where he said, the first Russian that gets across the river will be given an Order of the Red Star, which was the highest achievement you could possibly get as a medal at that time. So it's a pretty incredible medal to obtain. Official British government documents regarding Crab's disappearance are not scheduled to be released until 2057. 
Another theory was that he was captured, brainwashed, defected, or a double agent. So certain members of Parliament and Michael Hall became concerned about Crabbe's fate, and in 1961, Commander J.S. Kerens and later in 1964, Marcus Lipton, submitted proposals to reopen the case but were rebuffed. Various people speculated that Crabbe had been killed by some secret Soviet underwater weapon, that he had been captured and imprisoned and left Wartovo prison with prisoner number 147, that he had been brainwashed to work for the Soviet Union to train their frogman teams, that he had defected and become a commander in the Soviet Navy under the assumed name of Lenoid Krabov, that he was in the Soviet Special Task Underwater Operational Command in the Black Sea Fleet, or that MI6 had asked him to defect so that he could become a double agent. There was also the MI5 theory. So Tim Binding wrote a fictionalized account of Crab's life, Man Overboard, which was published by Picador in 2005. Binding stated that following the book's publication, he was contacted by Sidney Knowles. Binding alleged that he then met Knowles in Spain and was told that Crab was known by MI5 to have intentions of defecting to the USSR. This would have been embarrassing to the UK, Crab being an acknowledged war hero. Knowles has suggested that MI5 set up the mission to go to this particular boat, specific or ship specifically to murder Crab and supplied Crab with a new diving partner who was under orders to kill him. Binding stated that Knowles alleged that he was ordered by MI5 to identify the body found as Crab when he knew it was definitely not Crab. Knowles went along with the deception. Knowles has also alleged that his life was threatened in Torremolonis in 1989 at a time when Knowles was in discussions with a biographer about the claims that Crabbe was planning to defect to the Soviet Union. Reg Valentine of the Historical Diving Society was quoted as saying, and I quote, Diving historians find it very hard to believe that this man who prided himself on being a patriot would have seriously considered defecting. Crabbe was very fond of being a hero and it is hard to imagine him jeopardizing that status. End quote. It is not clear just why MI6 would recruit a man who was known to be planning to defect the Soviet Union to spy against the Soviet Union, or why Crabbe would agree to such a mission if he really had decided that he wanted to live in the Soviet Union. The last possible theory was death by misadventure. So the British diving expert Rob Hole wrote in 2007 that Crab had probably died of oxygen poisoning or perhaps carbon dioxide poisoning and that Crab's age and poor health caused by his heavy drinking and smoking had made him unsuitable for the mission that he had been assigned. In support of the death by misadventure theory, Hole stated that before disappearing on his second attempt to dive to the, the ship in question, Crab had, during his first attempt, experienced equipment failure, which which suggested that Crab's equipment was not up to standard. Crab's MI6 officer, John Nicholas Reed Elliott, always took the view that Crab had suffered equipment failure and or his health had given way and that his reputation had been unfairly dragged through the mud. So what really happened to Lionel Buster Crab? Well, it's certainly fair to say that Crab did swim out to the Russian vessel, but what happened next is down to who you believe. The most credible evidence seems to be Joseph Zwerkin, who I mentioned before, that was a member of, or an ex-member, I should say, of the Soviet Naval Intelligence. He was interviewed in Israel in 1990, where he had moved after the fall of communism. He stated that a diver had surfaced near the ship and had been shot in the head by one of the ship's crew. Seems about right to me. I mean, all the secrecy surrounding this affair seems to be not so much about Crab and what he did, but rather about what the various government agencies did, why they did it, and why did they cover it all up. It is interesting to find out that the official government documents relating to this affair are not scheduled to be released until 2057. 
With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show. Let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Daily Motion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. There have been mysterious deaths of people who worked for GEC Marconi, the defense arm of GEC, on the Stingray Torpedo Project between 1972 and 1988. However, there are some deaths after 1988 that are also included in this list.